Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, church. It's good to be back with you and uh, apologize for having to step out last week and happy for Dr. Scott Gibson to be willing on short notice to step in. But uh, now I've done my thing for COVID. I hope that's the last thing I have to do for COVID. See how remarkable your memories are. How many of you remember exactly where you were, what you were doing four years ago today? Anybody just off the top of your head? How many of you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing 21 years ago today? Yeah, it's kind of hard to forget, isn't it? We were probably glued to a television screen at that moment and wondering what in the world was going on. 7.46 on September 11th, 2001, like December the 7th, 1941, or November Uh, the 22nd, 1963. People who live through those dates have those moments in time etched into our memories, do we not? An airliner traveling hundreds of miles an hour carrying 10,000 gallons of fuel slammed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 846, 746 our time. A few minutes later, a second airliner hit the South Tower, and we watched with smoke and fire and glass billowing things falling from buildings, including people. 50,000 people worked there every day, and the two towers collapsed within 90 minutes. Meanwhile, another plane had slammed into the western face of the Pentagon, and a Moments later, a fourth airliner crashed in Pennsylvania, bound for the United States Capitol or the White House, perhaps, but passengers heroically brought down their attackers, and the plane went down. 2,600 people died that morning at the World Trade Center, 125 at the Pentagon, 256 in the four planes. The death toll that morning was more than Pearl Harbor had been. Some few months later, there was organized what was known as the 9-11 Commission, literally the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States. And their task was to understand as best they could what had happened and why it had happened and why it wasn't prevented and what we could do in the future. In August of 2004, they published their report. The executive summary of that report says that there were four failures they could identify, a failure of sources, of uh, failure of policy, of capability, of management, but the biggest failure they called a failure of imagination. The report said the most important failure was one of imagination. We do not believe leaders understood the gravity of the threat, a failure of imagination. That kind of failure lies at the heart of many failures of organizations, of governments, of churches, of individual lives. We fail to imagine the way things 
could be. And it's especially a dangerous failure for the church of Jesus Christ. When we lose, as God's people, our, our capacity to imagine the kingdom of God present among us, living among us, working among us, coming in the future, but already present. When we can no longer imagine living as the people of God, living as Jesus taught us to live, when we can't imagine that, we go on with business as usual, and it is a huge loss. We find ourselves relying on and depending on those resources that can be accounted for, our knowledge and our wisdom and our experience and our education and our financial resources, and we rely on those human resources alone and fail to see the power of God working among the people of God as he intends. When we can't imagine the kingdom of God in its fullness among us, what we end up doing is succumbing to the empire. Uh, the powers that be around us, this world's way of seeing and thinking and valuing violence, greed, selfish demands, a quest for power. That's the world's way, and that's what we lean into when we fail to imagine the kingdom of God. And if we're going to be the church in the 21st century, challenged in ways we haven't been challenged for a long, long time, we're going to need more than mere human resources to take us forward. We're going to need sanctified, holy, redeemed imaginations that can see the kingdom of God. Let me be pointed about this. The church, and by the church I mean the church in the United States, the church in the West particularly, but the U.S. particularly, evangelical church in the West, has been hit hard by a failure imagination over the past couple of years. We didn't imagine a worldwide pandemic and how we would respond to that what it would take for the church to be able to endure the physical separation that was thrust upon us suddenly by this and the radical revision of how we do worship and how we manage ourselves in small groups and uh, how we do our ministry during a time like this. We were caught up in largely in the anxiety and the fear of the world around us very quickly. Uh, we, we managed our way through it. But we had to reimagine a few things, but we didn't, we didn't finish the work. In the process, we argued and divided over mask or no mask, vaccines or no vaccines, in-person or virtual worship. I can tell you that pastors and church staff members were being asked to do ministry in a way they had never imagined. There'd been no way to prepare for this. How do you do the work we're called to do when mainly we're occupied with keeping divisive factions in the church, trying to keep them all happy, and, and that's not a possibility. I talked to dozens and dozens of pastors during those two years, and I can't tell you the... Um, the impact that that alone had upon them. Many, many pastors retired early or left ministry as a result of having to deal with something that seemed to them to have nothing to do with the kingdom of God, the warring factions of their congregations. Uh, they were trying to take responsibility for the health and welfare of the congregations, and what they got back were complaints and accusations 
people left churches and joined other churches more in line with their way of seeing things, which made the idea of Christian community practically meaningless. How are we committed to each other if when we disagree about something, we just leave? Where's the commitment in that? The pandemic response became one of those politicized things in our culture, and it left pastors receiving complaints from both sides of the aisle, and many of them uh, deciding to do something else. They didn't feel called to just manage quarreling congregations. I'm not talking about that happening here and there. Friends, that happened in many places across our country. Meanwhile, you and I were isolated in our homes in the early stages of that pandemic, and got to confess that many of us consumed more than the recommended daily requirement or of uh, cable television and news. And as a consequence, we heard this politicized rhetoric on both sides of the aisle again and again and again. And during that time, it seemed like everything was politicized, wasn't it? It's not just the disease, race and police and climate and even more. And we were just hearing that pounded into us. And the division among God's people was growing wider. We failed to imagine the kingdom of God and were caught up in the values and noise of the kingdom of this world. I know for, imagine, for a certain, we never imagined that our culture would divide the church the way that it has. We didn't know that our professed followers of Jesus were slowly and slowly leading the, yielding their allegiance to political parties and politicians more than to Jesus Christ. And what we lost in that process was our witness to the world. What an opportunity we might have had to demonstrate the compassion and love and unity of Jesus Christ in the midst of a world that was being splintered in so many different ways. But we failed to imagine that. 845,000 Americans died in the first 96 weeks of the pandemic. That was three 9-11 events per week for 96 weeks. That's how tragic it was. And it's taken our lives and our way of life. But most importantly, many congregations were left infected with a nasty disease of selfishness that ate away at our love for each other, our fellowship, and our witness. We, we just couldn't fully imagine ourselves being followers of Jesus in the midst of a time like that. We turned inward. Now, I got to be honest, this is not the first time that followers of Jesus have struggled during times of difficulty, struggled with fear and struggled with reactions in ways that don't reflect the kingdom. In the first century, Christians in Rome were being persecuted. Their leaders were being arrested and taken away from them. There were congregations that were raided. Christians were being accused of all kinds of things and being imprisoned and executed. If you were a Christian in Rome in that day, you must have wondered at times, where is God in the middle of this? And why are we suffering like we're suffering? Mark, the gospel writer, 
wrote his gospel to that church in Rome. And he wrote a short gospel. It was probably the first one written. He wasn't following anybody else's pattern. And he selected stories out of Jesus' life that he had probably heard straight from Simon Peter. He selected stories out of Jesus' life to tell the church, to remind the church, to help the church reimagine itself in the midst of a time like this. That's what the gospel of Mark was for. Many of the stories that he tells are about failure of faith or failure of imagination, really, on the part of the original disciples of Jesus. I think he was trying to say both to them and and to us, followers of Jesus are prone to this. We're not exempt from this. We're not immune from this. Our imagination can fail us when crisis hit, and we need to be aware of it. Even the heroes of the faith like the apostles endured that. There are three stories that Mark tells that are particularly important about the failure of imagination and hope for a redeemed imagination. The first story is when we read from Matthew, actually, a few weeks ago, but it's also in Mark, and that's the story of Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee with his disciples in a boat. Uh, They're crossing, and there's a wind against them, and they're not making good progress, and Jesus comes walking to them on the water, scares them to death, and he takes them in. And, And Mark says at the end of that story, they didn't understand because their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. Then he tells another story, which I would have preached about last week had I been here, uh, in Mark chapter 4, about the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee in a boat, and suddenly there's a windstorm that arises, it's about to capsize the boat, and the disciples are bailing water as quickly as they can. They imagine they're going to die. But Jesus is in the boat with them this time, asleep in the back of the boat. And they wake him up, and they ask urgently, accusingly, wake up, teacher. Don't you care that we're perishing? I'm sure that was the question of many of the disciples in Rome during this time of persecution. Where's God? Don't you care about what we're going through? Why don't you stop this? Where's God when his church is up against such times? Jesus woke up, and his first thing to do was not to reply to his disciples at all. He turned to the wind and waves and rebuked them and said, Peace, be still, calm down. And everything calmed down immediately. And then he turns to his disciples, and he asks them, somewhat accusingly, somewhat curiously, Why why were you so afraid? Where was, your, where was your faith? Where was your imagination during this crisis? What did I say to you as we left the dock? What he had said to, them, had said to them, the dock was, let's go to the other side. He didn't say, let's go out in the middle of the lake and drown. If they had just imagined more of who was in the boat with them and what his capacities and capabilities were and how he is Lord of all nature and and how he had said we're going to the other side, they might have been able to to imagine other than death death in Lincoln. But fear and failure of imagination, Mark was telling the church, um, that's what gripped them. But Mark was about to say, we can do better. We can imagine better. We can believe better. We can do better. Then it's only a few chapters later in Mark chapter 8 that is the story I want us to, story I want us to particularly focus on this morning. Again, the disciples are in the Bible of Jesus. This is where this happens. 
Here's the story. Jesus had miraculously fed two hundred crowds. One, a crowd of more than 5,000 mostly Jewish people on one side of the Sea of Galilee. And then... He did that with just five pieces of pita bread and a couple of dried fish. And then they crossed the sea, and on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, in Gentile territory, he fed a crowd of more than 4,000 people. And he had just seven loaves of bread and a few fish, it says, and he fed those. In both cases, the disciples were unable to imagine Jesus meeting this need of this huge crowd and these meager resources. And in both cases, the disciples' imagination was, why don't we just send them all off to go do their best to find some food? And Jesus said, no, you, you tell them to sit down and you feed them. Imagine that. In both cases, they were sufficiently fed from those meager resources. And in both cases, they took up baskets of leftovers that overflowed. Twelve with the first group and seven baskets with the second group. I've always wondered what became of that food. Uh, I think it showed up at a lot of Baptist church suppers as tuna fish sandwiches, but I'm not sure. Then they crossed the sea into Jewish territory again. And as soon as the boat landed and Jesus got out, he was immediately met by a group of religious authorities. And they came to him and pointed their fingers at him and said, we want to see a sign. We want to see some evidence from heaven, something miraculous that tells us you are who you claim to be and that your message is true. You want to see signs? He's fed 5,000 people there just a few days earlier. He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. He's been doing that publicly. And yet none of that penetrated the imagination of these religious leaders. They had a perceived view, uh, preconceived view of what the Messiah would be like. He would be military. He would be political. He would win. He would overthrow the empire and its forces. He would put us up front. He would be victor. That's what they imagined. And Jesus didn't seem to be doing any of those things or even talking about a kingdom slightly like that. Show us a sign. And Jesus just stopped the whole thing and said, get back in the boat, boys. No sign will be given to you. You're hard-hearted. You refuse to see. You're blind. And they got back in the boat, and they just turned around. Now, the disciples had been given a responsibility already. They were out of food in the boat. They only had one little piece of pita bread left. So they were supposed to go to HEB and pick up some other things to have for the rest of their, their trip. But uh, they hadn't had time to do that. Meanwhile, Jesus is sort of stewing in the boat while they leave the shore about these hard-hearted religious leaders, the leaders of his people that he loved, and, and their refusal to believe in him, their unbelief that permeated everything they did like leaven, like yeast permeates a loaf. And in a bit, Jesus turns around to his disciples and says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. And beware the yeast of, he of, the, of the Herodians. This idea that permeates all their thinking that is about a political Messiah, about a military Messiah. Be, be aware, beware of that. Well, the disciples heard that, and they never got past the word yeast. They thought, uh-oh, he's upset because we, on we didn't get any bread, and we only have one loaf. And they're sort of talking among that. To each other. And that's when Jesus confronted their failure of imagination. 
that resulted in this unbelief and hard-heartedness and spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness on the part of the church. And failure to remember those times when God has been present and God has acted and God has provided is one of the ways that a stunted imagination fails to believe him in the moment. We, we forget about all that he's done. And that there's always, when God is present, more than meets the eye, more than just the physical surroundings. Mark doesn't leave the suffering church with that rebuke, though, or us. He tells some stories to renew hope for the church, that even in the midst of crises, the church can have its imagination refreshed, renewed, redeemed. Something more is possible than even those apostolic heroes imagined back then. They came around. They came to believe. They came to be willing to embrace the kingdom that Jesus taught, even to the point of bearing crosses and suffering. And so can you, Mark tells the church. Back in chapter 4 of Mark, Jesus had been teaching all day long, and he was teaching in parables. He told these stories that were a little... Ordinary. There are things about planting and baking and ordinary activities of life. But he always started out by saying, the kingdom of God is like this. And he would tell the story. And many of the people, disciples included, would sort of scratch their head and go, I don't, I don't understand how the kingdom's like that. I, I thought the kingdom was about kings and armies and uh, battles and victories and celebrations. How is the kingdom of God like a seed planted in the ground? How is it like bread being baked? I, I don't get that. And in chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, Mark says, after he had, Jesus had been telling all those stories, when Jesus was alone, those who were around him, along with the 12, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables. In order that, and he quotes from Isaiah, they may indeed look, but not perceive, and may indeed listen, but not understand, and that they may not turn again and be forgiven. That was, Jesus said there are insiders and outsiders when it comes to the kingdom. And insiders get it. They have an imagination that can see the kingdom the way I'm, I'm offering it to you. They can, they can imagine the kingdom and they want to live into it. And they want to obey and follow me. And they're not looking for all those things the world's telling them to look for. They're looking for something entirely different. They're insiders. Outsiders just hear the stories and scratch their heads and don't understand. He said, because they have eyes and can't see, and they have ears and can't hear, and they have hearts that are hardened. And now, there in the boat, Jesus questions his disciples and asks, are you insiders or outsiders? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? Are your hearts hardened as well? Where is your faith? Where is your imagination? But here are the glimmers of hope that Mark offers to them and to us. In chapter 7, just before feeding the 4,000, Mark tells the story of Jesus healing a deaf man. Here's someone who had ears but could not hear, and Jesus healed him so that he could. In chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, the passage immediately following this one, there's a story of Jesus curing a blind man. He had eyes but he couldn't see. 
Jesus actually has to touch him twice to get him to see. Maybe a hint to the disciples that this is not an easy process and that regaining our sight may take more time than we thought. But Jesus heals the blind man. And then there's a series of stories in Mark after that, 827 to 1045, in which the spiritual blindness of the, of the disciples, their inability to see the kingdom and to understand Jesus as the suffering servant of God, is illustrated in one story after another from 827 to 1045, just one after another, their blindness. But then, in chapter 10, verse 46, following that section, there's the story of Jesus healing another blind man. This one is Bartimaeus. He has a name. And he's on the side of the road, and he's calling out when he heard Jesus is coming by, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he kept shouting that. People are telling him, sit down, be quiet. He doesn't have anything to do with you. And he kept doing that, and Jesus heard him. And Jesus said, bring that man to me. And they brought Bartimaeus to Jesus, and Bartimaeus left his cloak, Mark says, and came to Jesus. And he got to Jesus, and Jesus asked him the obvious question, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, Lord... I want to see. I want to be able to see the faces of my friends and my family. I want to see the beauty of this world. I, I want to see again. And Jesus says, go your way. Receive your sight. And then Mark distinctively says of Bartimaeus, and he went and followed Jesus on the way, which is Mark's term for he became a disciple, to follow Jesus, to be on the way with Jesus and the rest of the stories in the Gospel of Mark at that point are all about Jesus going to the cross and the tomb and the empty tomb. I think Mark tells the story to let his friends in Rome and us know that those early disciples struggled to see the kingdom at times, and the crises that impinged upon them made it even more difficult at times. And they, like those unbelieving religious leaders, had their own preconceptions about the kingdom and about power and position and they wanted to avoid suffering, and they couldn't understand it when Jesus talked to them about taking up a cross and about his own coming crucifixion. They struggled with that. But even they eventually came to understand that the cross was part of the kingdom for Jesus and for those who would follow him. The church would not be exempt from storms. This church would not be exempt from persecution. But the church would always have Jesus to see them through the crises. He would always be in the boat or come walking on the water. He would be present in the midst of those crises. They were to keep their imagination of the kingdom alive through every trial and every difficulty they faced. And like he healed the blind and the deaf, Jesus can take disciples whose eyes have grown dim and find it difficult to see the kingdom in the present circumstance, whose ears have grown deaf and they find it hard to hear the voice of God in the present circumstances. And he who heals the blind and the deaf can help them live in this world and see and hear more than this world's message of power and violence and greed and rights. Above that noise and through that fog, they could hear and see the words of compassion and service and hope that Jesus offers to his followers. Here's a few suggestions about how we might find our sacred kingdom imaginations rekindled, refired, redeemed, realigned in these days as we have moved through crises ourselves. How we might find ourselves doing a bit better. Three words. The first one is remember. 
remember. How many baskets did you pick up after I fed 5,000? Why, we picked up 12. And how many baskets did you pick up after I fed 4,000? There were seven. There's always been enough. We remember you've been active among us. We have seen with our eyes your work and your power. We have heard with our ears your amazing teachings and work. We remember those things. We're not going to forget those in the midst of crisis. We're going to return to remembering all that you've done for us. Where is the evidence all around you of God's reality and God's presence? What do you remember about those times in your life, individually and as a church, when despite a crisis, God has shown himself present? You may not be able to have been able to see it in the moment, but you saw it in the rearview mirror, at least. And remembering can do wonders toward helping us imagine and remembering God's presence and God's kingdom in the present crisis. Remember. Return. We turn to Jesus for healing of our imaginations, even as we once turned to him for healing and for salvation and forgiveness. Like the deaf man in Mark 7 or the blind in Mark 8, we come to Jesus for his touch, for his grace. We say with Bartimaeus in chapter 10, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when others try to rebuke us or hinder us or tell us to conform to the world's ways and demand the things the world wants and power and violence and and greed, we, we keep saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus says, come to me, we leave behind our old way of thinking like he left his cloak behind. And we get up and we go to him as Bartimaeus did. And when he says to us, as he said to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do? We say, Lord, I want to see again. I want to see the kingdom more clearly. I want to see the world the way you see it. I want to see people the way you see them. I want to see my trials and difficulties the way you see them. I don't want to be blinded anymore by this world's ways of thinking and deafened by the noise of its shouted values. I want to see the kingdom coming. I want to welcome the kingdom as it comes. I want to advance the kingdom as you call me to do. I want to live in it right here and now. I want to see. That's what returning is about, coming to Jesus to receive our sight and have our imaginations renewed and stirred for the kingdom requires something of us, though. It's not just as simple as the touch. We come to learn from him. We return to his word. We read his teachings. We read of his life. We read those instructions the apostle gave the early church for how they were to live life together in the midst of a a pagan society. We open the Gospels and walk with Jesus and learn from Jesus daily. That's the story. That's the story that will reshape our thinking. It is the narrative of the kingdom of God. And we hear and see so much of the world's story that if we don't inoculate our thinking against the empire, we're going to buy into the world's story. And so we return to Jesus. We return to listening to him and to paying attention to him and observing him and emulating him. The empire with its lies and demands for political power and violence will draw us into it, and we will think it's the way to the kingdom before long. But it is not. Remember, return, and then re-engage. Having received renewed sight like Bartimaeus, the call is for us to follow Jesus on the way. We deliberately reorient our life to him and say, I'm here to follow Jesus and no other 
It is Jesus that I am following. What he says goes, not what the world tells me. What he says is true, not what the world tells me. It is his kingdom, not this empire, that I am here to give my life to. We re-engage and follow. That road leads to the cross and the empty tomb. It means that we start to live daily again as God gives us strength in the, re in the reality of the kingdom. We love. We forgive. We give up our rights. We stop demanding of God. We stop judging. We sacrifice. We pray. We worship. We give thanks. We live into the kingdom deliberately and intentionally depending on God's Holy Spirit to empower us in that life. Remember, return, re-engage, and the imagination can be refired. The book of Revelation opens with the risen and glorified Jesus dictating seven letters to seven churches that were around at the end of the first century in what is modern-day Turkey. The church in Ephesus in chapter 2 of Revelation receives a rebuke. They had some things to commend them. Their teaching was pure. Their doctrine was accurate. They'd endured some trials patiently. They were hard workers. But the rebuke Jesus gives that church was this. In the midst of all of this, you've forgotten how to love you no longer imagine your life in the world this way. Jesus said to them, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And then he gives them instruction. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, return, re-engage. That's the way to a redeemed kingdom imagination, one that every congregation and every Christian needs in order to live in the kingdom in days like this. I don't know where Trinity Baptist Church, how you manage these past two years and with what effects. I don't know your individual life. I only know mine. But I do know that none of us could possibly have escaped some imprint of living through this crisis and the din and noise and fog of the world without it having damaged our imagination to some degree. And I believe Jesus is saying to us, as he did to Bartimaeus, come to me. Let me touch your eyes. Let me open them. I want you to see the kingdom fresh again. You are my people. I love you. Let's return to anything we need to return to. Let's pray together. So, Father, um, it's easy to see ourselves in Bartimaeus' place about having first to recognize the ways we've been blinded and the ways we've been deafened and our need to remember all you've done and to return to you, return to hearing from you, return to worshiping you, return to letting you be central in our lives and re-engaging with the way we actually live with each other and with our world. We pray, Lord, you, where it needs to be done, would stir and rekindle and redeem our imaginations and our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.